coming up on the Money Beat podcast. It is the 50th anniversary of the premiere of Star Trek, and in that time, it has become a global phenomenon. Everything has been discussed about this show except for the economics, and that is what we are going to do on the podcast next. We are with author Manu Sadia, and his book is called Trekonomics. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Welcome to the Money Beat Podcast, everybody out there. Paul Vini here in the studio, and you're saying you're you're saying to yourself, why, why am I hearing William Shatner in the theme song to the original series of Star Trek? Well, because on September eighth, next week, coming up here, uh, is September eighth is the fiftieth anniversary of the premiere of the original series Star Trek in 1966 by on NBC lasted 3 seasons got canceled fans kept it alive kept the fires burning comes back in the 70s with the motion picture goes on to become a global phenomenon over the years five television series 13 movies uh you know books scholarly articles dissertations everything about Star Trek has been discussed uh, dissected, ripped apart, except for, interestingly enough, and that's why we're talking about this on Money Beat, except for the economics of Star Trek. That really has not gotten a lot of discussion. Yes, we all know that there's no currency in the 24th century, but the rest of it is really being left kind of vague until now. Uh, Manu Sadia is an author who has written the book Treconomics, the Economics of Star Trek. And what we want to discuss now is, is what, uh, what life looks like in the 24th century, how close we may actually be to having a Star Trek kind of economy, and, uh, you know, all kinds of things about geeky fandom because I'm a huge Trekkie myself. So, Manu, calling in from California, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. And, uh, you know, our, our, the first question we have to get out of the way here is uh, Trekkie or Trekker? Trekker. Oh, I, I was afraid you were going to say that. We, <laughs> we might have to end this. We might have to end this interview a little early. I, I think we can all get along. You think uh, we can? Yes, I think we can. Yeah, yeah. Klingons, humans, <laughs> Trekkies, Trekkers. All right. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll operate under a flag of truce today, and we'll let that one go. <laughs> I, so it's, it's, I, it's been a longstanding debate in right. the fan communities. Right, right. So I assume you, you wrote the book because you're a Star Trek fan, as I am. Yes. Yes. So how, let's talk about how, how did you end up writing this book? How does this come about? So um, it had been bouncing around in my head for a very long time because I've been a Trek fan since I was a kid and I, you know, grew up reading science fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, I live in L.A. and a lot of people in L.A. Uh, work in the entertainment industry. I moved in a new neighborhood three years ago and turns out my neighbor is a used to be a writer and executive producer on Star Trek Enterprise. His name mm. is Chris Black. Uh, and so it was kind of a dare, like we were uh, shooting the breeze one night and, you know, every Star Trek writer and producer is also a scholar of the show. They have to be. Sure. And um, we were looking through his stuff and we were discussing, okay, so what hasn't been written? What hasn't been, you know, seriously explored? And it turned out economics was one of his, one of those. Right. right. And um uh, so we, it was, I, I kind of wrote it on a dare, I must say. Wow. Um, <laughs> but it, it was something that, you know, obviously uh, I, I had a lot, um, uh, I, I had thought a lot about over right. the years uh, with my other trikey friends. Yeah. So um, that, that's, that's how it came about, yeah. basically. So, so you, you, write, you, you write this book, and uh, what's the reaction been to it where where's where is <laughs> well, this I mean, exploration the, the, taking the, you so the the strangest thing is that it turns out a lot of professional economists academic economists are um closet trekkers or trekkies uh brad delong from uc berkeley mm -hmm. uh made me the honor of writing the forward to the to the book and he's a he's a lifelong uh trekkie yeah and um, we ended up on a panel at Comic-Con New York last year with Paul Krugman mm. and Brad DeLong and uh, Annalie Newitz and 
you know, um, a few other people and Chris Black. Yeah. Uh, so that was strange. Uh, and and Paul Krugman is a known science fiction fan. Uh, yeah. uh, deeply uh, uh, into Asimov. It's, it's because mm-hmm. of reading Asimov that he wrote, uh, it's because he read Asimov when he was a kid that he decided to become an economist. Uh, and he wrote the preface <laughs> to, I mean, the intro to uh, Foundation, the, the last edition of oh. Collected Foundation. Yes, it's a beautiful text. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so so that that's how we, right. so it turns out a lot of economists are Star Trek fans. <laughs> Uh, I, I had a, a, a funny exchange with uh, another uh, professor of economics whose name I will not disclose, who told <laughs> me that, you know, he wouldn't get any points. He really, this is kind of the kind of book he wanted to write, but he wouldn't get any points by writing it, you know, in the profession in terms of reputation. So right. that's the, that's oh how God. it is. So, uh, so, so I'm, I'm very surprised about that. And then the, the reaction in general in the fan community has been wonderful. And uh uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm 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 servicing the fandom. Right. This, this right. was the goal. So, wow, that's great. So you find yourself uh, on a stage at Comic Con on a panel. Yes, about, yeah. I mean, had you ever thought that you'd be on a, a panel at Comic Con? Uh, maybe, but with Paul Krugman, <laughs> certainly not. Right. Right. <laughs> that's, that's that's really funny. Yeah. Uh, so, and it's wonderful because he, he's very, you know, he's a very sharp and insightful person. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, he gave me some notes on the manuscript. So Oh, he know, did? What, That's cool. Yeah, what else can I say? I right. mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy. Live long and prosper, man. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> so it's interesting because you say a lot of economists are, are closet Trekkies or Trekkers or whatever. Yes. Um, but there hasn't been a book like this before. What are... You know, what are the hallmarks of the economy in the 23rd, 24th century? And, and why do you think that economists, I mean, we know a lot of people are drawn to the show, but, you know, maybe that's just a separate question, why economists might be drawn to it. But before we get that, actually, tell me what are the hallmarks of the Star Trek economy? Well, it, it's not, it seems that most of market activities mm-hmm. and therefore incentives for you know behaving as market agents have been removed because mm-hmm. of uh abundance but also because the fact of uh abundance of goods and services is dispensed through machines mm-hmm. uh like automation you know the, right. the replicators the robots and all that but also that these services and goods are dispensed to people and distributed as public goods so the the everybody is allowed to use them, and um, my using these services does not prevent anybody else from using it, and nobody can put a price or a toll on the usage of these services and goods. Uh, so it's it's a non-economy almost, or it's a post-economic situation where you have to find new ways to uh, incentivize people to work and to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, Star Trek, in a way, resolves or or is very similar. That that I discuss that in the book, and it's a part that is a bit geeky. But if you're into science fiction, you realize that Star Trek draws a lot from Asimov, yeah. and Asimov was really the first to explore what would happen to humans if um, all our needs are taken care of by robots. Uh, what kind of um, meaning to life would we have to build for ourselves right. if we are not uh, um, forced to work in order to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and Star Trek really deepens that insight and, and makes it, you know, uh, uh, the, the linchpin of its universe. Right. Well, and- so that's, 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 I think, why economists in general would be very interested in it. Yeah. Because it's what happens on the other side of the mountain that is the industrial revolution. Like Star Trek shows us the end point yeah. of the industrial revolution where no longer any work is required and machines have taken over. And so what what do we do? What's what's left right. for us humans? And, so and, and I think a lot of people have pointed out too, it's pretty obvious that, you know, Star Trek takes the optimistic viewpoint of that dynamic. Right, that, Obviously, you know, yes. Yeah, but that's yeah. you know, I mean, that's the other thing with science fiction. It tends to be overwhelmingly dystopian. Right. Uh, it's 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 the Frankenstein story. 
uh, that was also Asimov's original insight that you know uh, the robots are going to kill us. Is is the, our own creations are going to kill us? Yeah, is kind of a, a sublime and gothic imagination around robots, but it might not be that. Uh, but strangely enough, uh, Asimov and and Star Trek are, are really the only main um, you know authors, body of work, franchise, whatever you want to call them that. Uh, deal with automation as something that will be inherently uh, felicitous. Yeah. Well, yeah and that's I, very rare. Right. Yeah. Really. And I think something, it's funny because I've been seeing a lot of people talk about this, uh, you know, how optimistic Star Trek is and the vision of the future and people are drawn to that. And I, I definitely think there there certainly is something to that. What I think is interesting that isn't getting a lot of talk around this 50th anniversary is people forget that, you know, this show comes out in 1966 you know, I mean, height of the Cold War. And I, I think yes. people forget that part of Roddenberry's sort of mythology of Star Trek was that in originally, and they, they, I know they've updated the timeline as the show has gone on, mm. but, but originally in the timeline of Star Trek, there was a global nuclear war in the 1990s yes. that destroyed society. And, yes, and, and then things get reconstructed. Right. And, and then we meet the Vulcans. Right. It's, yes. But, you know, uh, it's, so I, I just think it's interesting. Everyone's talking about how optimistic it is, but they forget the fact that in Roddenberry's original vision, you had to go through literally the worst cataclysm in the history of humankind for humans to realize that everything they had been doing was wrong and what it was mm-hmm. going to lead to. And you have this massive uh, cultural shift to yes. this more you know, egalitarian, more inclusive society that we end up seeing portrayed on the show, which is where we all wish we would live. I, uh, yeah, I mean, it's true. I, I, I'm of the opinion, at least that, you know, we might not need a nuclear war to get there. Right. But let's hope. <laughs> uh, I mean, um, let's hope. That's, well, I mean, Star Trek in a way, that's the other thing that I, I sort of discuss in the book and, you know, that came out of my research mm-hmm. was that it's very close to what uh, John Maynard Keynes described yeah. in the 30s, where the, uh, the amount of social wealth would become such that the, uh, the pursuit of money and wealth accumulation would end up being seen as, and that's Keen's words, uh, semi-criminal, semi-pathological. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, Star Trek is, is, is Keynesian in a yeah. sense, at least the economics of it. it, um, it yeah, it's crazy because I thought there was something that uh, you wrote right on page five, you wrote it, and you talked about how in this sort of post-scarcity era that Star Trek operates in, where everything really is available to everybody, that the question would be how how those things are distributed, and what yes. I yeah what I thought was crazy was and you probably saw this too uh, Stephen Hawking did an AMA on Reddit where he made yes. the, he made the exact same point, and, and <laughs> I mean it's logical it, yes he, he's a highly logical man right uh, right Stephen Hawking that the, and, and he's a Star Trek fan he was yeah. on, he was on an episode of the next generation yes he was right right that the 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 first issue is going to be okay we have now reached the point where we have the tools to provide for everybody will we actually use them to provide for everybody and i think uh to that point you know a lot of people say oh but there is money in star trek yes there is because you have the ferengis and other civilizations um and interestingly enough so the the it's contained in star trek this discussion which is yes right the federation has replicators and everybody is free to use them the ferengis have replicators as well but they make you pay for it yeah so it's clearly not star trek is really of the opinion that it's that technology is neutral in itself mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. clearly not a matter of the natural path of technological progress that leads to this uh, a more equally or even distribution of goods. Mm-hmm. It is a political decision by society made to actually uh, uh, the Ferengis decide never to, to, right. to keep on making you pay for the replicator whereas the Federation decides, eh, it's not worth it Let everybody has have a replicator in their house or wherever yeah. and uh, worry about more interesting things. Right. That's um, 
so it's a political decision it's it's a collective decision it's a matter of collective action mm-hmm. um and maybe that that matter of collective action might be sped up by the fact that at least in the real world i'm talking that by the fact that the cost of things is going to converge to zero mm-hmm. um i mean we already see that in many services on the internet um right exactly yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not. I, I, who knows? You know, it's always I, it's always hard to make predictions in the real world. It's easier to do science fiction in that sense. Right. Um, but, you know, uh, but but it's true that a lot of uh, uh, things. I mean, I've seen that in my lifetime. Uh, the cost of many technologies, the cost of many goods, is uh, uh, creeping back down yeah. uh, pretty fast. Right. Well, because uh, we're getting lab- better labor at being one of them. Yeah, I mean, right. I mean, and and we're getting better at this. And we're getting better at the market expense. Right. And and we we have a lot of people who don't actually understand the dynamics of that yet. And you are ending up with decisions being made based on, you know, old modes of thinking. And we're ending up with a, a lot of problems because of that. I yes. And I think I mean, the book discusses that at length. Yeah. The question of Malthusian. Uh, Malthusianism is like we our resources finite mm-hmm. because you know imagine a world where um, you have uh, infinite wealth like Star Trek you know mm-hmm. um, wouldn't natural resources be a limit to uh, uh, is there like a natural limit to how wealthy society can be and Star Trek says no and it's actually very uh, thoughtfully explained Um but the general idea is that thanks to science and technology and the circulation of knowledge, we are able to substitute natural right. resources. So there is not necessarily any limit to how well we can combine natural resources into goods and services. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, to, to use the, the word of a famous libertarian economist, um, the brain is really the infinite resource, the human brain. Oh, who said that? Um, uh, Julian uh, Simon. Oh, Julian Simon. That's a good one. Uh, yeah, who, who, <laughs> who, was a good a, one. who was an eccentric man uh, and ended up being a crank anti, you know, global warming and all that. But uh, he well, was a very, good. yeah, but he, he's the guy who designed the system by which air, airlines give you vouchers for volunteering not to fly. Uh, he, oh. he was a very smart and astute man. Um, interesting. So, right. so that's, that's the story about Malthusianism. Yeah. I don't, I, I think uh, we tend to think these, these days, oh, but population growth, population explosion, we're never going to have enough resources. Mm-hmm, and all that. Mm-hmm. Not clear. The market actually has a way to drive us to find new substitutes. Right. Um, and so that, I think, is not the actual limit or the actual you know, hard impossibility to a society of abundance. Yeah. I think the real challenge is, in fact, political. Right, uh, right, right. Let's, and uh, that's what's underneath Star Trek's uh, grand view of society, is, is that there are societies that make the decision to distribute resources and wealth and worry about other things. And right. there are societies that um, cling on to uh, more um, outdated modes of thinking and organization. Right. All right. Let's take a break there. When we come back after this uh, important message, we are going to discuss I'm, – I'm so nerdily excited about this, Manu. Uh, we are going to discuss how close we actually are to a Star Trek-type economy. Hey, this is Stephen Perlberg from the WSJ Media Mix podcast. Are you interested in the biggest changes in the media and advertising business from Facebook to Snapchat? Tune into the WSJ Media Mix podcast for interviews with some of the biggest names in media, from Gawker CEO Nick Denton to Turner President David Levy. For more, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. To boldly go where no man has gone before. 
Welcome back to Money Beats special Star Trek 50th anniversary issue edition uh, podcast. Paul Vigna here in the studio with author Manu Sadia, who is writer of the book Treconomics. Just came out from Piper Text. Manu, how are you? I'm doing great. All right. So we talked a little bit about the book, about how you got to do it, about uh, the fact that we're both a couple of uh, Trek geeks, um, some of the economics of the 23rd, 24th century. What I want to talk about now, and I, I really, the more I, I was reading your book, it was almost like on every couple of pages, something was just ticking a box for me. Um, the, the more I read it, the more I, I started thinking about how close are we, at least potentially, uh, to 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 actually having the kind of economy that is that is shown in Star Trek, and the 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 short answer, folks, is we're not that close. But the interesting answer, I think, and this is what I want to talk about you with Manu. The interesting answer, I think, is that a lot of the elements that you would want, that you would need, I do think actually exist now. What, what do you think of that? Well, so I was looking, you know, writing the book because it's the big question, uh, yeah. right? Like, sure. is it possible? Is it going to happen? Is it a matter of technology? Is it a matter of social organization? Right, right. It's the big question. And what I discovered to my surprise is, is that, uh, and I'm glad it actually shows through the book, uh, is that we're not where where there are elements in in the real world today that strongly remind us of what you can see in star trek mm-hmm. um and the one i focused on in the book in particular is gps so global positioning system um this is something that did not exist uh, up until the 80s yeah and um ronald reagan decided to make it free and available to everybody who could build a receiver. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was in the wake of the, uh, I don't know if you remember, the shooting down of the Korean Airlines plane over Russia because the plane had gotten stranded and did not have access to satellite mm, navigation. Yeah. So to make a long story short, that uh, decision uh, had profound rippling effects that were not really foreseeable at the time. Uh, and now when you think about it, all of our phones are, you know, have GPS receiving right. chips. Uh, it, it forms the basis for an uh, increasingly large sector of the economy. And I, it's not just Uber. It's also, you know, all the remote sensing applications that are out there tracking, right. uh, tracking objects, uh, tracking patterns on Earth, um, creating data uh, and big data about Earth in general and humanity. Mm-hmm. It, it is something that has had profound effects in the way the economy functions. And this all rests on a uh, basically a public good. So right. it's freely available to anybody and nobody makes you pay for it. Um, and it is run by the Department of Defense for about $1 billion a year. Hmm. Um, you know, in maintenance and new satellites and things like that. So it's a pittance right, compared right. to the kind of wealth and the kind of services it provides. Right. Uh, there are 3 billion GPS receivers active as of uh, the last time I checked, uh, mm-hmm. which is crazy. Uh, and then, you know, the Russians have one as well. It's called GLONASS. Uh, the, the Chinese are building one. The Indians are building one. Europe is building one called Galileo, like wow. a GPS system yeah. as well. So um, this is one example of these public good, technological man-made public goods that are profoundly altering um, the economy today yeah. and you know the obvious was the internet but i wanted to to get into something that's less obvious than right, the internet right. well uh, something something i i thought was probably less obvious and depending on who you talk to i guess you know is you talk a, a fair amount of, about of these in the in the book is you talk about the replicators that we see on star trek yes. all the time right and people you know god picard says earl gray tea hot and he gets it yeah. and somebody wants you know dinner and they get it and somebody you know you can replicate anything uh and what i what strikes me about and i've thought this for a while too is you know like uh 3d printers are a very yes. early 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 version of the replicator it's this i mean it's a 
you know, look, this is a fictional show. I get it, folks. Look, I'm yes. not going too far off the edge yet, right? But, I mean, you can you can see how a 3D printer in 10, 20 years, the way technology develops, could become the replicator and the, the massive, massive change that will have on our economy. It's very hard to foresee. It's like yeah. the GPS. Um, does it mean relocating, manufacturing? Exactly, uh, right. In country, does it? What does it do to the price of things? Yes, um, it's you know, and people say, well, but the replicator, you know, like it benefits from free and available and infinite energy. Well, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, energy is not that expensive today, except right. you know, well, I mean, they're, they're, it's a separate discussion. But the point is, what's interesting in the replicator is not so much the energy that it uses mm-hmm. or the materials that it transforms, but it's the fact that the design of the things it replicates is separate from the production. It's, right. it's software. Right. It runs on software. Uh, uh, the actual making, the mechanical uh, aspect of making um, can be anywhere, mm-hmm. and it rests on designs that are somewhere in the cloud or, you know, right. uh, software designs. Right, and right. so this, so that this you, you... Move, the work moves to the design. Yeah. It, it's no longer in the shop, on the shop floor. Right. And that is something that is happening, you know, slowly and incrementally in every industry. They're using... Um, very advanced 3D printers, so using laser sintering, which mm-hmm. is the process by which lasers actually uh, um, create objects by fusing metals. They're using that for airplane parts now. Right. Um, because you can make objects, uh, you know, in one go instead of assembling different parts together. And so it's sturdier and all that and right, uses right. less material. It is happening the the universal replicator in Star Trek that can make anything is a metaphor. Like we have yeah. to take it as a metaphor. Right. It's a right. metaphor for automation. But and you know, usually the future tends to look a lot like the present. Uh, and it's not like in science fiction. Right. So I can see a world and I can see, you know, yeah, 10, 20 years from now where the the uh on site on-demand manufacturing of things will become kind of a normal yeah. things. It might not be in stores. It might not be in your house, but it might be very close to your place. Right, and, and that's that's going to be a big change when when the production of you know anything. I don't know a, a, a computer, a widget, call it a widget, whatever. When it moves from a process where it has to be built in one place by a group of people on an assembly line, then stuck on a container, shipped to wherever, put into a store, sold through that. When that yeah. whole giant supply chain process is transformed into something where, like you said, software, you download the print, you download the schematic for whatever the widget is, and then you print it off. That yeah, and and probably I mean I I'm not sure I the the consumer applications might take a longer yeah. time but you could readily imagine shops where you know Amazon you order something on Amazon and they have those big machines that mm-hmm. assemble mm-hmm. everything on demand and on spec um, and it 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 changes the nature of supply chains and global right. supply chains right um, this is not crazy uh this is actually uh uh, the kind of stuff that you know you see pop up in economics literature here and there i mean the economist was talking about that last week um so this is we're getting closer in that sense in terms of the machinery yes uh in terms of the social arrangements Mm -hmm. around the machinery and the distribution we still have a long way to go yeah, uh, right, to be right. exactly like Star Trek. And I think we still have a long way to go because the main challenge, I don't think it's technical. The main challenge is, and I talk about this in the book, what happens when the manufacturing becomes something so trivial that it is, you know, two or three percent of GDP. Mm-hmm. Just like agriculture is. It used to be that agriculture and the production of food was uh, um, 
took up a lot of the manpower and the energy and the wealth of, a, uh, of the United States. I think it was 30% in the 30s or something like that. Now it's down to 2 or 3%. Um, and the price of agricultural goods ha has gone down tremendously while production has expanded. The same thing probably will happen for manufactured goods. Right. So the problem is this. It used to be that manufacturing with the value added was the way for nations to build up wealth and to build up um, uh, the, their standards of living. So think about South Korea or China or Japan after the war. These countries have zoomed ahead mm -hmm. thanks to becoming workshops of the world. Um, well, that option for building, you know, countries and institutions and raising standard of living, that that option of industrialization is probably foreclosed for the next countries. Mm -hmm. And so what happens to countries in the global south when the path to wealth through industrialization is no longer an option? Uh, what happens to the billions? I mean, there's going to be, you know, two billion people in Africa by the end of the century. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the option to become workshops to the world and raising standard of living the same way China and Korea did uh, will no longer be available. So what happens? Right. Um, not everybody can be a barista at Starbucks or, you know, no, but I mean, yeah. it's, it, 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 it's a bad joke, but it's very serious. Um, how will these countries, what kind of opportunity will that give to these countries? Hopefully, uh, the, the, the development of knowledge and, you know, universities and, uh, intellectual property and that type of things will be, uh, uh, available to them, mm -hmm. but will that employ as many people? Right. Will that help distribute the wealth that's created by economic activity in a way that raises uh, uh, standard of living for everybody, but also that includes everybody and that makes for stronger and more stable institutions? This is the main challenge, and this is all happening, of course, on the backdrop of the challenges of global climate change right so we have a lot of work ahead of us yeah that's the, the we're not there yet and it's going to be very rocky the 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 you know star trek and that's the part that really infuriates me in a way as a fan is that it doesn't really deal with that transition right uh, only in touches here and there and some episodes here and there yeah and but the transition to a world of abundance for everyone because right now we do have abundance in, you know, uh, industrialized countries. Yeah. It's not evenly distributed, but right. compared to what it was 200 years ago, it's, you know, uh, a marked uh, improvement. Mm -hmm. How do we spread that improvement to other countries while at the same time, um, you know, not wrecking the planet right. and uh, doing it in a rational way? Well, th th there's a lot of work to do, and okay. uh, the pace of technological change and the profound changes that are about to take place because of, well, yeah, 3D printing, the internet, GPS, all these public yeah. good technologies. Well, um, we, 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 it's all new. It's hard to figure right. out. Well, it's I, hard to devise policies. Right, and and to get back to the the point I had made in the the first segment. You know, you're right. Star Trek doesn't go into depth in it, but in the the yes. the myth of Star Trek, how do they deal with it? Well, they deal with it by having eugenics wars and a global yes. nuclear war and hundreds of like. Well, they, okay. they, they, they kind of gloss over it, but they do make it clear that it was a terrible, terrible yes. uh, calamity to get from the world of the 1960s to the world of the 23rd century. So hopefully we don't go that path. Right. I don't believe that uh, the Vulcans will come. You don't. <laughs> that, that, you don't think they're no. coming? <laughs> uh, no. no. Uh, it, it's uh, they probably exist somewhere, but you know they're out of reach as much as we are. Uh, you know, uh, out of out of reach. their reach. Right, right. Right. Yeah. I mean, Wait, uh, let's let's. Warp drive is going to be tough to swing. <laughs> yeah, well, warp drive is right. Warp drive is the one that probably isn't coming anytime soon. Well, let's talk about one other one that I've kind of been holding off on, but it's it's a big yes. 
interesting aspect of this is the fact that in the 24th century, there is no currency. Yes. Yeah. And I have ideas about that, but let's, you know. That's, I mean, it's, it's something that kind of makes sense internally. Like, it's internally consistent mm-hmm. with what the show uh, uh, presents in terms of the organization of society. Since a lot of things are public goods and the value of manufactured goods has converged to near zero or zero, um, a lot of normal mar- market activities are no longer um, useful to set prices. Right. That that's really what what it comes down to. What's the point of having a pricing mechanism such as the market when um, there is no scarcity? So the problem of imbalances between supply and demand uh, are no longer you know an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the pricing mechanism in the market is fantastic. And resolving the problem right. of, of supply and demand. If uh, there are no imbalances because there is instant communication, perfect information, as they say in economic jargon, <laughs> and also uh, if you want something, you can get it from the local replicator, then, I mean, you still use currency. They still, the Federation still uses currency with other societies that mm-hmm. do not uh, function in the same way. Uh, and so they have foreign accounts and stuff like that. Uh, but in a sense, they, they within the Federation, they don't really use it. And and when they when you see Starfleet officers playing Dabo at, at Quark's bar, you know, in Deep Space Nine, it's it's almost like a quaint thing. It it seems like a game for them, right? Uh, and which it is. Um, they don't really um, use money in that sense. Yeah. Um, it's. I, I, you know, it's very jarring, especially in our world where money is everything right. and really is our everyday obsession. Um, and so it offers a nice counterpoint, I think. Like, yes, you can imagine a society that would function differently where incentives would not be financial, but mostly about reputation. Yeah. But obviously it is a thought experiment. It is a thought experiment about how people would organize themselves under radically improved conditions. Right, right. And you know what I, I think, and again, folks, we, Manu and I both understand that we're talking about a fictional show. It's not real. We yeah. get it. You know, like, uh, but, you know, in, in thinking about that fact, fictional world, something I could extrapolate to our real world is you think about a world where money is not, and I could see Star Trek, what I could see realistically being very akin to the Star Trek universe where there's no money is a universe where you you have money, but it exists in a very, very different form. And what I'm getting at is uh, I read a lot about Bitcoin here at the journal. So so I'm kind of up on on this stuff. And there is there's one guy, uh, Balaji Srinivasan, who is out in out by you in California. Uh, he's out in Silicon Valley he has a startup called 21. And what he's trying to do is create a, a He's trying to take Bitcoin and almost turn it into another computer system resource where you have GPUs, you have processing power, you you have memory. You would have Bitcoin almost as an underlying protocol for computers, for devices to talk to each other. And this becomes interesting when you talk about an Internet of Thing world. We have all these connected devices. What you end up with is this world where you have all these connected devices – that are talking to each other and exchanging value, right? So, like, I could have a yes. phone, you could have a phone, you and I could uh, trade something or exchange something, and the entire process gets taken, it gets handled at the level of the computer, at the level of the GPU, so that you and I aren't actually exchanging money. We don't see it as exchanging money, but things are being transferred, things are being traded, and what you end up with, I think, is a world that would kind of look like Star Trek, where you don't really think about currency as being currency. It all kind of happens in the background. It all kind of happens within the the net. uh, We all know that money is also a vector of information. Uh, Right, right. and, And it's... It resolves, I mean, I can see also how this will lead us because it will, the blockchain will will take over the world. I mean, it seems logical. Um, And it it solves a lot of problems of coordination. Mm -hmm. That is, imbalances between supply and demand. Um, If you have, uh, I think that's the dream, right? Like you have gigantic... Uh, distributed computers mm-hmm. and computing systems that 
um, almost, you know, just in time, almost uh, automatically solve, um, yes, imbalances between supply and demand. Uh, right. it's, it's, it's the kind of stuff that actually Asimov describes in um, iRobot, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the sort of the machines uh, uh, not only control the flow of information, but the flow of goods and the, the transactions. And as a result, uh, the machines have perfect information. Hmm. And so you do not really need any kind of planning either centralized or spontaneous through yeah. the market and the price mechanism. Um, I know we're getting very nerdy here, but that, there, that... Is, there is definitely the, 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 the rise of information systems and big data right. and, and thinking of goods and transactions and, and monetary transaction as data uh, uh, transforms the way we use money and transforms the way it circulates. And exactly. probably transform allocation as well. Right. Um, and and we're probably going to get to that at some point. And you know whatever you will get paid in, you know whether it's tokens for reputation and good behavior or uh, um, you know whatever cashing whatever, out will be yeah. in fifty years, it won't take the form that it takes today. Right. That's that seems to be the the. The key here, yeah. and maybe as a result, you know, because it's no longer such a physical thing and such a, a, a tangible thing, money. Maybe it will matter less, mm -hmm. and maybe it will not be as central to our existences. And maybe uh, reputation and being a good citizen and being somebody who contributes to society at large will be more rewarded. Right. Um, and by the way, uh, already in our everyday lives today, there are many activities that, that we engage in that are not remunerated mm -hmm. and that escape uh, the, 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 the pool of uh, market exchanges and transactions. Uh, and a lot of it takes place online yeah. in the yeah. form of information. So, um, yeah, I, I'm... I I'm fascinated by this. Uh, uh, I, I, obviously, this is very wonky and nerdy. And the that's book okay. Is this less, is listen. Is, any <laughs> Manu, anyone who's listening at this point is totally yes. bought into what we're talking about. <laughs> so it's okay. This is you, me, and you know our fellow yeah, travelers yeah. here. So it's okay. At this point, uh, if we still have you, I, I wanted to reiterate that <laughs> the book is not as. Uh, um, I, a lot the of book is very edited, readable. It's it very readable. Out. Yeah. No, the, the book is, it's very readable, folks, so don't be afraid of it. Uh, you know, it's funny, so you, you talk also about transforming the nature of work and reputation markets, and that was crazy to me, too, because there are people who are talking about building reputation markets where it's exactly what you say. You get a token, you get a credit for doing some kind of defined public good. You, you can see that existing in a very, very nascent form, but you can see that, people talking about building that kind of a thing, and then that, trans that ends up being in this fictional world. Yes, and I think you know, it's funny because a lot of the people are engaging in building these things uh, mm -hmm. you know, in Silicon Valley and in various research centers. They tend to be trickies as well. Right. I mean, you know, they, right. they, it's... it's um, I... I, I I'm I'm amazed by the 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 deeper uh, impact that this little show has had. Yes. Uh, and 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 because the impact was always very focused on a very specific type of people, um, it doesn't have the appeal of Star Wars, for instance. Uh, okay, let's not kid ourselves, yeah. people. I mean, you know, Star Trek is <laughs> not as popular as Star Wars, and it will never be. And that's not the point. Um, Star Trek really talks about the future from the standpoint of the future. Right. Star Wars talk to us talks to us about us today. So right. it's very different. Well, it's interesting um, if you think about it. Star Wars to me is more pure mythology, whereas Star Trek is more science. Yeah, and Star Trek actually you can't really relate to most of the characters because 
they they are consistent their yeah. their behaviors are consistent with the society they live in which is very different from ours right star wars like you can understand what they're doing and you relate and it's very emotional yeah so and and there we go you know we ended up talking about star, star wars. wars well you can't <laughs> it was inevitable i suppose in some yes, point it yeah. was yeah it was hey did yeah, you I... sorry no go ahead go ahead i'm sorry yeah i'm sorry uh, no no i i'm a i'm a and and by the way, you know the 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 thing that makes me think that Star Trek talks about the future from the standpoint of the future, and as such, is more challenging intellectually, mm -hmm. is that um, there's barely any mention of economics in Star Wars, whereas economics right. is really the the foundation on which. Uh, the Star Trek universe is built, mm -hmm. um, and so that's what I wanted to plumb uh, in the book. It's it's really I think the defining characteristic of the show, much yeah. more than the aliens or the spaceships or even you know the Prime Directive and and the sort of general tolerance and 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 moral uh, rectitude. Uh, all this is uh, uh, founded on the fact that these people in fiction live free of the worries that we do have today right. and we're free of the pathologies that come with, you know, well, relative poverty. Right. And, you know, another interesting thing, too, is is you think about economics and a lot of the issues we have historically, not even just today, historically, a, a lot of the the conflict the the acrimony, the racism, a lot of these things are rooted in 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 economics, not even just unfair economic systems, but in economics. I mean, whereas, yes. yeah. So you start talking about a post-scarcity world. You start talking about a world where supply and demand is not an issue. You start talking about a world where you're, you're not working for manufacturing for your wages. You're working for your reputation. And you can start to see where a lot of that, that historical us and them thing starts to melt away and starts to disappear. And yeah. again, everybody made a big deal about the fact that 1966, a show appears where you have people of every nationality and every creed on a bridge. And it was a working. big deal. And it was a big deal. Actually, yes, it was a big deal. Uh, but what no one really talked about was the fact that you got there through a different kind of economics. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I think now, I mean, it became much clearer in the next generation. Yeah. Um, and in Deep Space Nine, uh, and that was, you know, in Germ, and like that, that, that was kind of underlying the original series, but it was never fully explored, except for one episode that's called uh, um, The Ultimate Computer, is the one where the computer takes over the Enterprise, uh, and so there, there's discussion of that. Um, is that the, the one where Kirk has to trick the machine into making, yes. yeah, yeah, right, right, right. And this game, like, probably a couple months before 2001 was released. Yeah. Uh, it's the same type of story. Um, it's it's very uh, and it's very canny. And 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 Gene Roddenberry was a very learned man, mm -hmm. and he was really on top of it in terms of the challenges of the future. Right. right. Um, but yes, I mean, this is the 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 big deal is that this is a world that it tries to envision behaviors that are radically different from our own. Yeah. Um, and in a way that's realistic and that's appealing and science is used as a way to draw people in, I think, and space and the aliens. Um, but ultimately, it, it's like Asimov very much. Yeah. It's about the organization of society. Society, to me, uh, is, is the main character in Star Trek. Hmm. Uh, and obviously, I'm biased, but... Um, this is this is what got me to write the book, uh, yeah. and I, I'm really surprised, by the way, that this is. I mean, I would have thought you would have thought that somebody else would have done it by now, right? Right. Um, uh, and so I was really surprised that there was barely anything. Yeah. No, I'm, um, I'm glad you did it. Hey, did you have to? Because you quote a lot of the episodes, and, and you obviously have to know the show. But did did you go back and watch every episode? Did you sort of shit, or do you just know that? Uh, it, um, it, kind of, yes. <laughs> That's I'm, okay. I'm a, you can admit yeah. it. I did a rewatch, and you know, and then I focused on on uh, some very specific episodes. Like, yeah. I know the show now. By now, uh, you know, I've watched it so much that I kind of know where to go right away sure. for the stuff that interests me. Yeah. Uh, in terms of that, so so I did a rewatch, but I knew which were the episodes that really ticked me. I mean, there's this one called the Bar Association in Deep Space Nine that's you know fantastic. 
there's a few in next generation. So yeah, uh, uh, and I have a list of episodes that you know, at the end of the book that directly address economic yeah. stuff. Oh. So all right, Bef- uh, before we let you go, one last question: What is your yes. favorite Star Trek story episode movie? You know, like story. What's your favorite Star Trek story? I must admit, my favorite, all-time favorite, yeah. is Darmok. So it's the one where the Enterprise crew has to try to communicate with a species that has a different uh, linguistic structure. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember that. Um, the, uh, the, the universal translator actually works, so they can hear them, but they don't understand what they're saying because, in fact, they all speak in metaphors. And this is such a crazy and beautiful show you it ends up with patrick stewart telling the story of gilgamesh around the fire you know a campfire it's it's so uh profoundly optimistic about the ability of humans to communicate you know so there it's it's a it's an alien but in fact you know it's about communicating between humans and and cultures and bridging cultures and and it's such an uh it's such a smart and beautiful show, and um, I, I I rewatched it recently, and I was like, oh my god, they could like first of all, it's crazy that they could put that on TV, you know, right. because basically the antagonist or supposed antagonist, the alien of the week, like you don't understand what the guy is saying for the whole show, yeah, uh, and and they managed to carry the story through. And bring you to an understanding of that other, uh, and there's something there about the ethics of communication and the ethics of relating to one another, even if language seems to be such a chasm, that you know fills me with uh, great joy. And there's a, there's a sense of intellectual fulfillment at figuring it out yeah. while you're watching. Um, so it's really the best. It's it's the <laughs> next generation, Darmok. Uh, I think it's season four. Yeah. Um, and uh, and you know it, it's it's kind of this big uh, joke among fans. Like I was at the Star Trek 50th convention in Vegas, yeah. and there were people with shirts, you know, Darmok and Jalad. I mean, it's <laughs> you know one had the Darmok T-shirt and the other one had Angelad. Yeah. And and it's like. It's become That's a kind great. of an in joke, but right. it's also a, a kind of it's it's a very profound episode, and I'm sure people who listen to the podcast know it and All right. might agree. Right, right. So, all right, good. So that's the one. Thank you, Paul. No, thank you. So, Manu Sadia, prosper, live long and prosper, man. <laughs> that's right. Uh, listen, <laughs> Manu Sadia, the book is Trekonomics. It has been put out by Piper Text. Uh, really, if look, if you like Star Trek, if you like economics, you really should go buy this book. I'm not just you know plugging it for the sake of it. Uh, it's good. It's a, it's a really well done book. And it's a fun read too. So, Manu, I really appreciated this, man. It was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, And everyone, thank you for listening, and we will catch up with you very soon. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.